Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, last time I had the chance to offer a talk, um, I spoke about how helpful it is to remember the wholesome states. <clears throat> you remember? Have you been remembering? I hope every now and then. States like gratitude and sila and metta and compassion when you're in the midst of a wholesome state as the Buddha suggested to maintain and increase that state by being present for it, not missing it. And lest you think that this is just a feel-good approach to Dharma, I want to speak to the other side of how important it is to see and explore dukkha as a path to happiness and well-being. At this point in the retreat, um, things are cooking or you're cooking. As I said this morning, there's, there's no beginning and for some you're in the middle and for others you're uh, just launching onto uh, the second stage of a two-month retreat. And so it's natural that you're kind of opening to many different parts of experience. Some of you might be in the middle of a sukha phase. Wow, just seeing things and how empty they are or how connected I feel today. <laughs> and others uh, might be in a different phase today in your practice where you're going through memories or stirred up feelings and emotions that you perhaps thought you had taken care of on your last retreat. I can't believe I'm here again. Has, has anybody had that, that thought? A few hands coming up. That's what I want to talk about tonight. And I just want to remind you first, as I said in the opening evening talk, that uh, wherever you are is just where you need to be to wake up. If you hold practice in that context, when we take refuge in the Dharma, as has been mentioned, we are seeing that life is giving us in every moment what we need to grow and wake up. But it's not so easy while you're in the middle of it. Oh sure, yeah, just what I need, another growth experience. <clears throat> That's the, the Sila version of that, that sentence. <clears throat> 
And there's often this feeling that, oh, if there's so much dukkha, I must be doing something wrong. You know, I, I can't get concentrated. I was so concentrated a week ago, and now I, I'm backsliding. How many people have had that thought? Oh, you got a lot of company. Take a look around. Or there's so many emotions I'm having. Oh my God, I'm so pathetic, you know. Or there might be uh, grieving for the world, as a few people have said, as they tune into the pain of our world these days. Or there's lots of memories, lots of material that you thought you'd processed and here it is again. And so the, the mind can say, there's so much dukkha. Why is this happening? What am I doing wrong? Or uh, maybe you're finding yourself sleepy. I know I'm avoiding stuff. It's all in there just waiting to pop out like a volcano erupting. Or maybe you're just being mindful and you're hearing sniffles around you and you're saying, wow, um, am, I, am I missing out on something? On one retreat, it was one of my earlier retreats, I, um, I was sitting and everybody around me was sobbing and going through boxes of, of tissues and, and I was just sitting there feeling my breath in and out. Right? And I, I literally, this is honest, I went to Joseph and I said, I don't know if I'm I doing something wrong. Every, it seemed like everybody else was getting their money's worth actually, you know. And here I, I'm just feeling the breath come in and out, in and out. You know, what, what's going on here? Am I avoiding something? And Joseph in his great wisdom, as he often did, would say, um, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough. <laughs> and he was right, as he often was. So if you are in, say, a dukkha phase or a dukkha day or period, I want to share with you perhaps how to hold this that you're not doing something wrong, that this is a very um, important, essential part of the process. When the Buddha was asked about what he taught, he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. And the end of suffering is the highest happiness. But he started out his teaching, first noble truth, there is suffering in life. And he said, the more we can look directly at that truth and not be afraid of it and open to it, learn ways to open to it, the less we are setting up our life to avoid the inevitable part of life. So how to see this phenomenon as an integral part of practice and actually not only avoid it but see it as a, a, a welcome path 
to freedom. It takes a willingness. It takes courage. It takes learning how to be with things, knowing what our limits are, knowing how we can find balance in the midst of the dukkha. But as I said when I was talking about that, uh, those wise efforts, it's not just about cultivating wholesome states and maintaining and increasing them. The other side of the equation is doing what you can to guard against them, but when they're here, they're just part of being human, learning how to work with them and overcome them and transform them. And he said that dukkha is a path to freedom. Uh, you have been hearing about the three characteristics. Was there a talk on, yet on the three characteristics? Not yet. What's that? Just impermanence. You've talked about impermanence. The three characteristics, probably most of you are familiar. Impermanence, anicca. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And anatta, the selfless nature of experience. And why those are so key to understand why those are the <clears throat> really the essence of the flowering of wisdom is that any one of those three are a path to freedom. Some people more naturally are tuned into the impermanent nature of things. And so that's their doorway, seeing, oh, it's all changing. No need to hold on. It's a futile experience to hold on. And you see the empty nature of this uh, changing flow of who we are. For some people, they're more inclined to see that empty nature and just see, oh, this is all just a game called me, these five aggregates. And as you tune more into that doorway, you see the other two, but that is your gateway to awakening. And for some, many, dukkha is the path to freedom. For whatever reason, your curriculum has brought you some pain and sorrow and suffering in your life. And so, that is your doorway to come to terms with that and to transmute that from fear and self-pity or judgment into compassion and wisdom and freedom. And another list that uh, the Buddha talks about this as a, uh, a direct path to awakening is one of my favorite lists. Uh, which um, is called uh, Transcendental Dependent Arising. Did I mention that here? Oh, maybe. Um, you perhaps are familiar with the wheel of dependent origination, the wheel of samsara, where uh, out of ignorance uh, there's form that gets created and then there's... Uh, uh, six sense doors, and then there's contact, as we were talking about uh, earlier today, contact between object, 
sense organ and consciousness. And out of that contact comes Vedana, which I think was uh, just spoken about. And out of Vedana comes often a reaction of grasping and out of, a, out of craving, then to grasping and then to becoming and then to suffering spoken of as um, uh, sickness, old age, and death. And, just, and then the cycle goes around and around, both from lifetime to lifetime and from moment to moment. That's the wheel of samsara. But there's another teaching that the Buddha gives that is how to get off the wheel of samsara. There's a benevolent tangent that gets you off the wheel. And that starts with those last three, old age, sickness, and death, that are combined together into dukkha, suffering. So the first step on this teaching is, yes, there's suffering in life. And then the second step in this transcendental dependent arising, you can Google it if, you, uh, if you'd like, is that suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise. Not always. Suffering can lead to bitterness. It can lead to fear. It can lead to confusion. It can lead to negativity and anger. But it can, when properly understood, lead to faith. And faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy can lead to happiness and concentration and equanimity all the way to the uh, stages of uh, deepest freedom and awakening. Now, how can that be? How can suffering lead to faith? Let me just ask you in your own practice, how many people here were, have been motivated by their own suffering to try to find some answers, to make sense of what's happened in their life that have led them to a deepening um, connection to the Dharma. Take a look around. That's how it works. Suffering shakes us out of our complacency and makes us look for what is this? What's the, how can I find some meaning in this? And I just, actually before I go on, I just would invite all of us to take a look and go inside and looking back on your life, just think of a, a challenging situation that you have gone through, not that you're dealing with now, but that you have gone through in your past. And I'd like you to reflect on what did you learn going through that? What were the lessons? 
how did going through that help you grow? Okay, you can open your eyes. I'm curious, in just a few words, the essence of the lesson, we can take a few comments. Anyone? Yes. Causes and conditions, a very profound understanding. It's just causes and conditions. Thank you. Somebody else? Sit all and speak up real loud. Trust. That's a pretty good one that maybe you wouldn't have learned otherwise. Anyone else? It's not because of me. Beautiful. Anyone else? It's workable. Fabulous. Yes, one last one. Say again. Non-reactivity. Yes. And probably there's... 40 or 50 wisdom teachings that have come, we could say, through our own opening to dukkha. So this is not a bad thing. You probably wouldn't have learned those lessons otherwise if your life was just clear sailing. I mean, look what the Buddha's life was about. He had it all set up and his... Father said, no, we don't want him to look and encounter any suffering. Let him just be happy. And it's a good thing that he didn't settle for that. We're all the beneficiaries of him not settling for, yeah, this is the good life and I think I'm just going to stick around here. Because that's how we learn, that's how we grow. But the problem comes when we're in the middle of our dukkha and we have some identification with the experience and say, I shouldn't be having this. Why is this happening? I can't believe it. What a, what a pathetic yogi I am. Until sometimes... You go down far enough, and often it takes going down far enough to get to the point where you realize this is much bigger than your program. And you might get to the point where you say or feel, I give up. How many people have reached that point where you just say, I give up, I can't. I can't make this, control this. I give up is a really important moment because you can hear in that the I, the ego, is surrendering the control that you never had in the first place. And in that, you open with humility you open with innocence and surrender. 
But we have to understand that this is not a problem and this is not that you're doing anything wrong. As we've said a number of times, and I'm sure you've heard this in your practice if you've done retreats before, it's not what's happening that counts. It's our relationship to what's happening that is really the, the core of practice. What is my relationship to this experience? I want to read to you a, a classic uh, passage from uh, Trungpa Rinpoche called The Lion's Roar. And now the, it's the name of the journal, The Lion's Roar. This is what he says from The Myth of Freedom. The Lion's Roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including any emotions, is a workable situation, a reminder in the practice of meditation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive, as a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. He goes on a bit more. A relationship and a dance begins to develop as you work with the difficulty. Then the most powerful energies become absolutely workable rather than taking you over because there's nothing to take you over if you're not putting up any resistance. That is the lion's roar, that whatever occurs in the samsara mind is regarded as the path. Everything is workable. Isn't that good news? And as I said earlier in the retreat, one of my axioms that I really hope you get, it was a huge revelation for me. Struggling is extra. Just have that etched into your mind or heart. Struggling is extra. Yeah, struggling comes, but you don't have to add to it by struggling with the struggle. You don't need to add to the dukkha that's here. And in fact, remember we talked about when there is struggle, how can I find a balance of effort that creates enough space that I can hold this? And I wanted to share with you some meditation instructions from uh, Sayadaw uh, Utejaniya, who uh, is a, a really wonderful um, Theravadan monk and meditation master, uh, very influential on, uh, for a number of teachers, um, who has a, a very mm, wonderful take around struggle. This is from his 23 points on right attitude for meditation. I'm not going to read all 23. Don't worry about it. But I will read a few. Meditating is acknowledging and observing whatever happens, whether pleasant or unpleasant, 
in a relaxed way. When meditating, both the mind and the body should be comfortable. If the mind and the body are getting tired, something is wrong with the way you're practicing and it's time to check the way you're meditating. Now that doesn't mean that you don't go through periods of sleepiness and tiredness, but if the tiredness is due from over-efforting or trying too hard, uh, that's what he's talking about. The meditating mind should be relaxed and at peace. You cannot practice when the mind is tense. Don't try to create anything and don't reject what is happening. Just be aware. Rita, just a few more. You're not trying to make things turn out the way you want them to happen. You're trying to know what is happening as it is. You have to accept and watch both good and bad experiences. You want only good experiences? You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience? Is that reasonable? Is this the way of the Dhamma? Don't reject any object that comes to your attention. The object of attention is not really important. The observing mind that is working in the background to be aware is of real importance. If the observing is done with the right attitude, any object is the right object. And this is kind of points to what uh, that big mind meditation that we did this morning is awareness doesn't care. Sorrow, joy, pain in the knee, bliss in the heart. Ah, it's like this, as Ajahn Sumedho says. So, you hear that and you say, oh, I've got to relax more. Here's the corollary to that. Don't try hard to relax. It doesn't work. Good, try it right now. Try really hard to relax right now. Really hard. Because any kind of contraction of mind and you're working against ease and relaxation. So the key word, which we've mentioned a few times, is allow. You don't have to push anything away. You don't have to intensify it to get a better take on it. Just allow, like we do in that RAIN acronym. Recognize what's here. Allow it to be here. Give it permission to be here as best you can, if you can be with it. If you can't, then that's another story. But in your allowing little by little, to then explore and feel, okay, what's happening now without identifying? That's where the freedom is. Here's a a, a beautiful poem I love by Dana Falls. I've read some of her poems before. It's called Allow. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt or containing a tornado 
dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, your whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures and success, when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Now, I just want to again remind you that it's important to know what your limits are. You don't need to open your heart all at once if it's too much. You might not be ready to. You might need the most skillful thing to do is to take care and protect yourself and just a little at a time, what I call titrating your dukkha. Because even if you know here if you understand, oh, I need to face this, I need to be with this, uh, sometimes it takes a while for the, the body and the heart to catch up to what the mind knows. So that's why it's important to have patience with this process and to really go in a little at a time not to overwhelm yourself, but not to hold back in fear when you feel that there's something to be learned and gained. When you have the courage and the energy, touch it a little at a time. Because this is little by little a process of purification. Are you willing to see just a little bit more and stretch yourself. And this takes, a, again, an understanding that when you are seeing more and it seems like it's coming on really fast and oh wow, you know, I was so quiet just a, a few days ago and now there's a storm happening or now I'm seeing all of these yucky things that I didn't see before. Who needs this? I want to share with you a, a passage I love from Ram Das, who, as probably most of you know, recently passed away. Uh, 
one of my uh, main mentors and teachers and inspirations. This is what he says. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion. It's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple. But of course, the light gets brighter too. So actually, it might be very different from what you think. Some people uh, were saying, you know, it just seems like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wandering more and more. I can't believe it. I, I seem to be uh, not wandering nearly as much a little while ago. But actually, sometimes it's a sign that you're seeing more carefully how much the mind is wandering. And it was, you know, oh yeah, I was with the breath. And now you see, oh, I was with the breath and then gone and then with another part of the in-breath and then gone and then with... Or I'm just slipping off the object can actually be, in some phases of practice, um, a natural part of a, a deepening experience. It's almost impossible to see what your practice is like from the inside. That's why it's, it's helpful to come to interviews and, and have a little bit of reality check. But you also start lifting the lid off of lots of different parts of ourselves and you are... Life is revealing what you're ready for it to be. Uh, to be seen. So, there you are being humbled again and again and again and again. And you might, particularly if you've had a lot of practice, say, I know I'm stuck, but I still can't get out. That's a really hard part of this journey. I know, just don't take it personally. It's all just empty phenomena rolling on, but it's not working. <laughs> what do I do? And then we get really humbled and believe me, uh, I know and I could probably um, speak for everybody up here, know what it's like to be really humbled again and again, even after you've been practicing for years and years. And I always think when I'm being humbled, being humbled every now and then is probably a good thing not as a steady diet for you know, this decade, uh, but every now and then when you are 
on your knees, you see, oh, I'm not controlling the show. And it, it really deepens our compassion. And actually from that humility and getting through it each time, there's a, a sense of confidence. Oh yeah, I made it through. Gosh, I didn't know if I'd make it through this time. I made it through the last 200 times, but this time, I don't know. Oh, I made it through. Wow. It came and it went. And here's a key why you're in the middle of that seeing what's going on. Instead of getting frustrated by the fact that you're there again, or that you're seeing the pattern in all its glory. Instead of getting discouraged by seeing that pattern, appreciate that you're seeing it. One of my favorite lines of all teachings is Pema Chodron's, where she says, take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. Take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. Because if you didn't see it, you'd be lost in it again and again and again. And so that's what waking up is about. Even the Buddha, after he was enlightened, There's a, a whole series of vignettes in the, the connected discourses, the Samyutta Nikaya, called the, the Mara Samyutta, where Mara comes to visit the Buddha after he's enlightened. Probably know he was there before he was enlightened, but this is after he's enlightened. There's about 20 or so little vignettes Mara comes, one of my favorite ones, and he, the Buddha is sitting, and Mara comes and, and says, you call yourself a yogi? You call yourself a really strong ascetic? You're sleeping four hours a night. What kind of a wimp are you? Something like that. You're sleeping so much. Aren't you lazy? And the Buddha says, as he does in each of these I see you, Mara. And then Mara slinks away. Curses, foiled again. Now, if Mara can come and visit the Buddha after he's enlightened, cut yourself a little slack when you got caught again and again. And instead, oh, I see you. Oh, I'm waking up to that pattern. Oh, how, how good that I'm seeing it. And as long as you're learning, as long as you're becoming more aware, there's nothing wasted. There's no mistakes. And in this process of purification, you're on what's called the hero's journey. Probably you're familiar with the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell uh, made it 
um, famous, uh, the hero with a thousand faces, the archetypal journey of, of most myths where the hero or the heroine leaves their, the safety of their, uh, their life and goes on a quest. They, uh, on a quest they hear a call to adventure and as they leave that safety of the nest, they meet challenges and temptations. And in the classical cycle, they go through the abyss, through the darkest places, death and rebirth, and then finally revelation and transformation. And then they come back into the world, just like in the uh, Oxherding uh, pictures, if you're familiar in Zen, the ten oxerting pictures, where after one awakens to enlightenment, after going through the, their, his own fierce journey, they come back to the marketplace with gift-bestowing hands. That's what you're doing right here. We all know what it's like to go through uh, what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul where it seems like all is lost and then there's that transformation. My own journey, there's a number of moments that I, I can point to where it seemed like there I was like Jesus saying, why hast thou forsaken me? You know? And those are the things that allow us to come back and be there for others. So when you're in the middle of that, that very difficult place, and there's fear that comes up, just know it's okay. Fear is part of the process. Wondering or doubt is part of the process. That as, uh, as I like to, to think that anytime you're moving from your comfort zone to new territory, by definition, it's gonna be uncomfortable. And fear is, uh, is like the membrane from the familiar to the unfamiliar. As Jack Cornfield has a, a, a great way of saying it, fear, unless it's about actual danger, and fear is important to warn us when there's danger, but a lot of the time when it's just internal fear, fear is just really saying, about to grow. You're about to grow. And then it becomes like an ally. Oh, great, I'm growing. How exciting, how scary, how exciting. I mean, that's we pay good money to go on roller coasters, right? Or see horror movies. We like to be scared sometimes. You know. Well, fear is just uh, helping us learn to be with the unknown and see that 
we can learn to hold it with compassion, with metta, with mindfulness, with equanimity, with not taking it personally, with not identifying with the experience. And instead of, why is this happening to me? Oh, I get to see the human experience. I get to really understand it, not just for yourself, but for, but for everyone. <clears throat> this is uh, from uh, the mother, Sri Aurobindo's collaborator. She says, you carry in yourself all obstacles necessary to make your realization perfect. Always you will see within you that the shadow and the light are equal. If you discover a very black hole, a thick shadow, be sure there is somewhere in you a great light. It is up to you to know how to use the one to realize the other. So here's a few um, keys to working with dukkha that I find helpful. One, remember impermanence. This is what the Buddha said, to keep on reflecting no matter what. It's the one continuous reflection. Keep reflecting on impermanence. And when things are hard, it won't last. It's going to change. But to not project into the future that there's refuge right here in the present moment. Okay, this moment is workable. Two, to not take it personally, to not identify with the experience. Why me? Why not you? This is part of the human experience. Your turn to learn. Three, learning to be present with it and allowing and just letting in, letting in just a little at a time and know what your, what's called your window of tolerance is and just really learning how to, uh, to know what your capacities are. Another, instead of, along with impermanence, just see that the dukkha is not solid and that you might notice, as I said in the, the last talk, moments of well-being, that there might be moments of well-being even in the middle of your difficult period and that it's healthy to nourish yourself, to just take a break or go have uh, a walk in nature or go take a bath. For me, one of my uh, last resort instructions, when all else fails, take a shower. That's what I say to myself. You know, just need to kind of wash the energy. Okay, change the energy and get some space. That's wise. What am I learning? What am I learning as I'm going through this? You don't have to wait until you come out the other end and say, oh yeah, 
that was good. Oh, what am I learning right now? And then you see that you have this capacity to open up little by little to experience. What's really important is that when you feel stuck again, instead of thinking, oh, I'm backsliding, don't believe that. It's just remembering what you already know. Here's a, a beautiful um, letter that somebody sent to me. It was, uh, yeah, it was last, it, I think it was last, uh, last year's two-month retreat, this, uh, this young woman who I, uh, who I uh, support, she was here for the two months and then she, um, we, were, we were here in February and then she uh, continued on to March and then after the retreat, she wrote me uh, about her experience and she shared with me in that March retreat, it might have been two years ago actually, in that March retreat, she, um, she wrote a letter to herself because she had been getting lost again and again. And this is this one of my favorite pieces of Dharma wisdom from this young woman. She calls it, Letter to My Future Self. Dear future me, caught in resistance, boredom, doubt, or self-doubt, etc., etc. I know it may not seem this way right now, but it's worth it. Really, really worth it. And it's working. And you're not doing it all wrong. In fact, you can't really not do it right. Your intention is powerful, even if you may not recognize it at the moment. Sometimes it goes a bit undercover, but believe me, it's there, and that's all that matters. You're doing great, and you're wonderful, and I love you, and I'm so grateful that you're doing this. And I'm right there beside you with a lot of faith and compassion. Lean on it whenever you need it. All will be well. There is only one direction this can go. Letter to my future self. You might, when you're in the middle of really understanding and feeling how sincere your practice is, um, write your own version of a letter to your future self when you get caught. You just forgot, that's all. But it's in there. I, I love a line from uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes who was a, uh, a wise philosopher, Supreme Court justice and writer, and he says, 
A mind stretched by a new idea does not shrink back to its original dimensions. A mind stretched by a new idea does not shrink back to its original dimensions. Once you've seen, you might forget, it might be obscured, but it's in there. All it takes is the right conditions to remember what you already know. And the beautiful byproduct of this is that not only do you know it, but you can then offer it back with gift-bestowing hands. This is not just for yourself. This is for everybody who you will touch. This is your bodhisattva training. That's how I see it. When I see somebody going through a hard time and I know that they're sincere and I know that they love the Dharma so much that they're going to hang in there with it, I see the, all the people that they're going to touch. And I'll end with a bit of a story that really highlights this from, uh, uh, from somebody who sat here, uh, has sat here many retreats, and who I just saw this uh, last week. Um, her name is Nancy, and I said... I said, okay, if I share the story, I think I might share it on my next talk. And she said, yeah, sure. I, I write about it in, in my book, uh, Awakening Joy, uh, in the chapter on opening up to the difficulties as uh, a path to joy. So Nancy, um, I first met her over uh, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, I think it was, her 14-year-old daughter took her life. And it was, um, as you can imagine, devastating. And she came here the following February on the anniversary, and she was just kind of barely hanging in there for dear life. But the meditation was the one thing that, that she somehow could get some kind of solace and, and uh, process. And she came back each year it took her for about five years. She didn't do a, a, the month-long retreat each year, but she did retreat each year and often with me. And every February 12th, she would come on the anniversary of Julia's passing and we'd ring the bell 108 times to honor Julia. And it took about five years, four or five years to process all the pain and the guilt and the anger and the confusion and all of those things until at some point she turned the corner and said, I want to make some meaning and honor Julia and she wouldn't want me to be freeze-framing my life. She'd want me to be happy and she'd want me to do some good things with this. And so she decided to start being there for others, other parents who had lost their children. And as she did, she became not only um, lighter and processing it all, but she touched deep fulfillment and joy. 
And she sent me a card at one point, a beautiful card with, it was uh, some very, um, uh, it was a little kid with lots of happy uh, old, uh, older uh, men just all uh, jolly and laughing on the front. And then she wrote inside, I've received a gift that is beyond words. I've witnessed my deepest despair, the darkest, most wounded quarters of my heart, and learned not to flinch or back away. I rested in love and even tasted joy, all the while still knowing the sorrow of my loss. A few days ago, I held a bereaved mother in my arms as she sobbed. She'd lost her son to suicide. I held her to my heart as she held on for dear life. And as I rocked her, it was as if I was rocking Julia, rocking myself, rocking the broken hearts of all beings. In that rocking, in that holding, we were all held in one heart. I've been so blessed. And this year, for the first time, she decided, you know, I'm not going to ring the bell here this year. She's going to be ringing it at Julia's grave uh, gravesite. She said, I think I've completed my grieving in this way. And she's gone through a chaplaincy program. And I send people to her who've gone through tremendous grief. And she is this radiant being quite an extraordinary, beautiful being filled with joy. And she has this vision of supporting others, not only through their grief, but helping others learn to uh, become, in their own way, their own body, bodhisattvas. And we looked at each other, this is just last week, and we held each other's hands, and, and we just smiled with amazement. Who could have known? What an amazing gift I've been given. You're on your bodhisattva path. And all it takes is realizing you have a choice how to work with your dukkha and your pain. You have a choice. Christmas Humphreys, this is uh, Buddhist um, uh, scholar, he said, the one miracle this path has to offer is a change of heart. So I want to close with uh, this poem, another Dana Falls poem, called Choosing Life. The downward spiral starts, self-doubt and darkness vie for center stage, while I, the passive drowning one, wait for my demise. Just as I sink beneath the waves of my despair, a thought arises. Why go there? I've made this trip a thousand times and it leads nowhere. I'm choosing life. The darkness lifts just a little. I'm choosing life. The downward spiral slows, then stops. I'm lifted up and buoyant now not shrinking from the truth. Okay, I'm not perfect, and reality doesn't look like what I choose. And maybe that's the only point, to ride the spirals down and up and to make the choice for life.
Let's just sit for a few moments.